0: Human was not in the center of what we did. So, but what I'm finding is that's why initially we HR people went into the profession. We wanted to do this, but then we got bogged down by all these processes and policy reinforcements. So now when I talk to HR people and work with them, there's almost like uh, a liberation that they feel, that they now have permission to really center the uh, human again.
1: I'm John Fitzgerald, host of The CORD Podcast. I'm curious about the changing world of work. I want to have conversations that will help us all become future ready. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to The CORD Podcast. Our topic today is how HR can shape a future of work strategy. And our guest today is coming to us from Chicago, Nicole Deshian. And Nicole is founder of Talent Imperative an employee experience consultancy who works with corporate giants like Apple, Cisco, McDonald's, Mercedes Benz, Walgreens, Walmart, and lots of different small and medium sized organizations as well. Nicole is, I believe, an expert in design thinking, and I believe that design thinking can help us shape the future of work. And I was really impressed by a lot of the work that she's been doing and delighted that she joins us today. You're very welcome, Nicole.
0: Thank you. Thanks for having me.
1: So, Nicole, we'll start with a personal question, like we always do in the CARD podcast. So I'd like to know a little bit more about your younger formative years, early influences, and the values you believe you gained from your upbringing.
0: Yeah, I had to dig really deep for that one. (laughs) So, but what I landed on was that I started reading very early on. I don't remember when that, well, probably when I learned how to read but I was specifically interested in reading about different cultures and different countries, So I read like crazy, anything I could find around that topic. And it really, I think that helped to your point shape values. So I had an early interest in being curious about others, how others live, other languages and, and just, yeah, different cultures. And so, and that kind of then fed into um, my interests later on. So I learned a lot of languages in high school. I learned English, so I'm from Germany originally, so I learned English, French, and Russian, and later in college, I even took a semester of Spanish and Arabic, because I I think through language, you can learn a lot about different cultures as well. Language is sort of a window to cultures. And then I ended up studying international information management. And then for my first job, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I, I just knew it was it had to be an international job. So and it did. I know that's already way later, so I'm skipping ahead. But so that, that's sort of the threat. And now I'm an expat, you know, have been living in the U.S. for quite a while. So that thread of interest in different cultures and international and languages has just permeated through my life. And it's also, I think, given me a, yeah, um, I always think about, you know, in design thinking, we sometimes introduce ourselves through what's your superpower. And mine is connecting the dots. And I think it does come from that interest, you know, living across different cultures, having a liberal arts degree, working across different disciplines. So I've always been sort of adjacent to HR, either working in HR, consulting to HR at Accenture and now having my own business and now also infusing design thinking. So looking at the same discipline from different angles and then weaving in methods and frameworks from other disciplines. So that's just... You know, me connecting the dots. And I think it harkens back to those early days and those interests and, and just different things outside of my purview. I come from a very small village in Germany. So maybe it was driven by, you know, the need to get out of that very small uh, life that I had there. So
1: fantastic, Nicole. And it's really amazing how we had Stephen Barry on from Malaysia and he spoke about how his travel to the UK broadened his experiences as well. And I know from my own experience going to the States and living in different countries, it definitely gave me a different perspective in life from a small village in in Ireland, no more than yourself, near Hamburg in Germany. Um, Just for anybody who doesn't know before we get into design thinking, what is design thinking from your perspective? And obviously it has multiple applications.
0: Yeah, design thinking is a human-centric method for complex problem-solving and surfacing innovation. That's sort of the one-sentence definition. And it's sometimes we call it a method and a mindset. So there's various steps, and you might have seen models that start with discovery is the first stage, usually, and immersing yourself in empathy. Then we move to ideation. That's most commonly known. You know, when people think design thinking, they think brainstorming ideation, but that's really just a step in the entire process. And then, you know, solutioning, or sometimes you call it also prototyping and testing. So those are sort of the steps. It's not linear, it's loopy, but, and then there's associated methods with, with each step. But what's more important, I think, is the mindset piece. So, you know, for each step, we sort of, the first step, we want to immerse ourselves in curiosity and empathy in the ideation phase, we want to be creative, which is really different and new for people who don't come from a creative profession. So I work a lot with business people, HR people. And so to really flex that creative muscle again, which we all have, it's just deeply buried at this point if we're not in a creative profession. And then the prototyping and solutioning is also where you have to have sort of an experimentation and failure mindset is also very new to organizations, right? Because usually what, we are taught to do is failure avoidance, right? Both personally as well as a business, right? So it's from a mindset perspective, it's very new when we apply it to business questions and especially also to HR people questions.
1: And the pain points when you're called into an organization to support them are what from your experience?
0: Yeah, and they range. gamut but so they range from big picture questions Um, obviously right now topics like how might we reorganize to the future work right so that's a big one hybrid work remote work inclusive work environment so big picture questions To you know we've read some books about employee experience but it's such an emerging trend we don't really know how to apply it and plus HR organizations aren't structured to serve the end-to-end employee experience, right? We are very siloed. So how might we build either an employee experience function or just structure ourselves to deliver on it within HR to more tactical things like redesigning, performance management with an experience focus. So individual talent programs and also capability building and design thinking for HR teams. So it ranges from very big picture to very tactical capability building and program redesign.
1: So when you go into a leadership team for the first time and you meet with them and you're doing this design thinking and you're mentioning things like failure avoidance and uh, (laughs) that must be as scary as hell for for these people to bring them on this journey. And uh, I'd just like to, to get some insight into how you shape that day or that experience or that journey for them.
0: Yeah. So first of all, I'm very pragmatic when it comes to methods and frameworks and in the way that, you know, I've learned through my career, it's sometimes all about packaging, right? And what, And I don't necessarily go in using some of these terms. I don't necessarily sometimes use design thinking. I use co-creation. I feel like that resonates more with people. And I certainly don't go in and say, oh, let's, let's do some failure exercises. To <laughs> your point. Yeah, so um, we'll go in more. From the perspective, really, so the first starting point, as I mentioned before, in design thinking is really empathy. So I go in it also with empathy for whoever the audience is that I work with. So let's say that is leadership, like C-level leadership team when it comes to like future work visioning or something like that. Usually I do something first, like an activity that gets them to self-reflect individually. So gain empathy with themselves. What's top of mind for them? And then with each other, because sometimes around these topics, especially what we're finding is that leadership teams are not aligned, right? So gaining empathy for themselves, for each other, and then we're going to layer in empathy for employees. And for that, I like to actually have them do sort of some pre-work by interviewing employees and we sort of co-create our questions. So they're empathy interviews and they tend to be really eye-opening for them because sometimes they haven't had these conversations with employees. So both HR and leaders actually. So we layer in different ways for them to discover some of these things themselves. And that's sort of the power of design thinking a little bit. And then from there, right, we're going to layer on more quantitative data or, you know, other sort of facts and then have a discussion and have a visioning or strategy sort of discussion based on what they've uncovered themselves versus me telling them all the stats. This is all the best practices and Apple is doing this and Google is doing this, which executives normally want to know. But it's really not relevant when it comes to employee experience or really crafting something where there isn't a playbook, which we know for the future work, there isn't one. And so copying from other other companies really doesn't work. It really needs to come, the data needs to come from inside the organization.
1: That's so true, isn't it? I mean, we all love these uh, two by two models to simplify everything and show the huge data mm-hmm. from all of these big, huge multinational organizations who are mm-hmm. going through stuff. But does that really relate to the organization of 50, a 100, 1,000, 5,000 people and their situation? It doesn't often, you know. I'm just interested to hear you speak about the leadership team and empathy and I suppose, vulnerability and hearing stuff from themselves and others, which may not be so great. When you go on this journey, you've got to be open, you know, for not just a quick fix, but a longer journey. So so take me from that workshop or whatever it might be to the practicalities of what might be the outputs and what typically happens from that whole design thinking experience that you bring them on.
0: Yeah. And that's a great point. And it's often a very frustrating experience, you know, because theres there aren't easy answers. And I just recall one example where an executive after the session just said to me, when is this finally going to be over? And of course, he didn't mean it. You know, I knew he didn't mean it. But it's sort of, to me, it kind of showcases this, what I call executive fatigue at this point with having to make some of these very impossible decisions about something that they're just not used to thinking about, right? So what we're finding is that this executive fatigue, but also really, you know, we executives look at data all the time to assess risk and plan scenarios for the business, right? They're really used to it. But what we're finding is they're not used to doing this when it comes to interpreting employee-related data when it comes to the future work, which I find I'm very curious about why that is. And, uh, you know, I'm hypothesizing, but I don't have any you know data but i think it's it's due to this executive fatigue and when we are experiencing sort of cognitive overload that we're defaulting to what we know right so the first step is really to work through some of these frustrations and this fatigue and come at it with empathy with the executives and so this is the first step what we usually do and then It gets tactical very quickly because then, you know, usually we come out with some guiding principles for what the future vision might look like. And then based on these guiding principles, we'll like co-create usually with HR and with the leadership team, sort of a plan for, you know, how might we enable managers, you know, how are we going to co-create with the employees moving forward and things like that. And so we'll kind of co-create a roadmap because this is not, to your point, done overnight.
1: And isn't that an interesting new role for HR to play then, that instead of, you know, I guess, being the implementer, they're now having to co-create. And I saw one of your questions that you asked in a blog on LinkedIn, which I thought was really interesting. When was the last time you were asked to come up with a creative HR solution, was a question you posed. And I was just interested in how HR are coping with this new role that they will have to play? And what are the skills that they're gonna to need to co-create with their teams?
0: Yeah, it's a change, you know, it's a change both for the leadership team as well as for HR. Cause we were also, and I say we, because I consider myself an HR professional and nerd and that's not how we were trained, you know? So to your point, what we, what our role was policy reinforcers, quite frankly. And that's why my tagline is also, let's bring the human back to human resources. And it's for those reasons. Traditionally, paradoxically, (laughs) the human was not in the center of what we did. So, but what I'm finding is that's why initially we HR people went into the profession. We wanted to do this, but then we got bogged down by all these processes and policy reinforcements. So now when I talk to HR people and work with them, there's almost like um, a liberation that they feel, that they now have permission to really center the um, human again, right? So there's this almost collective (laughs) take of of a breath and a burden taken off their shoulders. And I have that a lot when I work with them. They're like, you know, I used to think that I had to solve this all by myself. Now I know I can co-create this with our employees, right? So it's almost a huge relief. But yes, it is a change. And it is requires us to rethink really, how we approach the work we do. And so, to your point around different skills or mindsets, I think it's really more of a mindset shift that needs to happen from you know very process oriented, very policy oriented, reactive in a lot of ways, to be more strategic, thinking about big picture questions we can answer as HR both within our organizations and beyond, quite frankly. And I posted that in that post that you're referencing, right? We, we are in a mental health crisis as, you know, across the globe. And so how can HR help solve that within our organizations, but beyond? Because as we found through the pandemic, employees are humans first. And the boundaries that we had created were really just artificial, but they're really full humans. So, you know, we need to become more strategic big picture question askers and really centering the human and everything we do. I think those are the two big picture sort of, you know, mindset shifts. And then in terms of skills, design thinking is a qualitative method. And I do believe that we need to complement that with quantitative insights. And now I know, you know, we have made some advancements in the people analytics space. So that's certainly understanding how to combine quantitative and qualitative data and tell a compelling story to leadership specifically, I think is is a key competency moving forward.
1: I want to ask you a quick question. Is your organization going through unprecedented growth, restructuring, or change? At Harmonix, through our consultancy and coaching work with business and HR leaders, we face one common challenge the overwhelming pace of change and not enough time or resources to properly reset to become future fit. If you would like to register for a free diagnostic session with one of our team of experts, go to harmonics.ie to get in touch today. Now, back to the podcast. And it's interesting when you talked about executive fatigue there, I did a Mm -hmm. workshop with a group of our own HR community about future-proofing their own career last week. And One thing I found was, you know, it was a three hour workshop for them to communicate with each other, how they were experiencing things. And it was such a challenge for them to put three hours in the diary for themselves because they felt they were such a to do list. They're servants to their organization and they want to help was a consistent theme across the workshop and this appreciation at the end having reflected on themselves, almost refreshed and re-energized them to say, my God, that was so great to have almost this retreat for myself, to think about myself and where I want to be in my career. So I think not alone is executive fatigue. There's HR fatigue there from all of the tasks that are being landed on their desk, because HR will do that. And I think that's the change in skill set and mindset, isn't it? To push back and to prioritize and to look at how you can add value more than just be the person who's implementing lots of those policies that you talk about.
0: Yeah, and that's a great observation. And so that I call HR burnout. And definitely that happened for sure during the pandemic, because as we know, there were so many demands on HR put that they, again, scenarios they had not had to deal with and they became sort of the parent, if you will, of the entire organization, right? So HR is extremely burned out. Already, to your point, it used to be in HR, and again, I was in HR, so I know it, and so I use that metaphor a lot. We never put the oxygen mask on ourselves in HR, right? We always, we give coaches to executives, we train others, we never put attention to our own development, and so that is just, you know, heightened uh, in these times and, you know, add burnout to that. So yeah, HR absolutely feels they don't have time to develop themselves. And so to your point, and what I said before, I think to reframe how we think about our own role and our own development in a way that, for example, doesn't have to be design thinking, but I I believe that it really can help us. If we think about it, that we don't need to be the owners and the doers and the designers of everything by ourselves. I think that's just a huge already mindset shift. And if we start to incorporate that more into our work, then the load will be lighter because it's not just us alone who do this. We do it with like, however, 100,000, 10,000 people that we have in essence an extension as designers in our organization as co-designers. It's not just us. And I think if we get more into that mindset and that habit that can free up so much emotional and actual workload and burden
1: that's a really great build on the point there then when wellness is such an important issue and we're going to see more and more of that mental health creeping into organizations and how we deal with that in an empathetic way speak to me then about the employee experience the candidate experience because obviously lots of organizations now are challenged with trying to find people and i was on another webinar yesterday and what I heard was a financial director talking about having to I, I really was struck by the language of we've got to think differently if we want to hire the right people and this was the first time I'd seen this almost you know appreciation of we've got to have a mindset change here and we've got to package ourselves better as you talked about from HR but as organizations going out into the marketplace so how can the work that you do help with that candidate experience? What are you seeing as the challenges where organizations are falling down, where they need the most help at the moment?
0: Yeah. So first of all, whenever we redesign an experience, we can use this human-centered design approach. So whether it's, you know, customer experience, employee experience, or candidate experience, it's really the basic approach is the same that we start from a point of empathy, discovery, and then ideation and, you know, solutioning. But, uh, Specifically when it comes to the candidate experience, and I've worked also in talent acquisition, so I've worked in that field. Uh, So there's so many things. Uh, First of all, I always say talent acquisition is one of the most complicated functions in HR because it has the most stakeholders of any HR function, right? And the more stakeholders you have in a process, as we know, there is uh, opportunity for process breakdowns, redundancies, and inefficiencies, and also inconsistently, inconsistencies when it comes to delivering a consistently great experience, right? So that's one thing. The other thing is that we historically didn't think candidates should have an experience. So that's the other thing. And that's still, it's pervasive too, right? They can be glad if we give them a job, right? So it's not about how can we make the experience great. It's like, okay. We got to weed out those that we don't want. And then the ones that we give a job to, they can be glad. And that's that, right? So there's still a lot of that mindset that we need to overcome. And then lastly, we have used, quite frankly, pseudo psychology and how we assess candidates. And then also how biases have been running rampant in assessing candidates. To your point, you know, we need to rethink what talent we look at. So yeah, there's a sourcing thing and an employer branding thing. But to me, that's secondary, really, because that's just putting lipstick on a pig. It's really about internally reframing and rethinking what are really the qualifications that we need for a job that are really predictive. And how do we then assess in a way that's predictive of success? And we haven't done that well. So there's just from attraction to assessment to bias mitigation, there's so many things that continue to be broken, quite frankly, in talent acquisition that we need to tackle.
1: Yeah, so true. And then when we talk to the hybrid and remote work and the change and how people are dealing with that, what, any themes or trends that you're seeing, because, you know, we've seen organizations who make dictats around this is the way we're going to be and other organizations being quite very much around, well, whatever way you want to work, that's fine. Nobody seems to have the definitive answer yet, and uh, I don't think there is one, but what are you seeing in your region?
0: Yeah, so I think we're pretty much still in an experimentation phase. So we're seeing all kinds of models, yeah, from dictating, you know, three days a week in the office to not, to completely free form. What bothers me a little bit with that? A, it's so hyped up in the media, and it's always this—you know—I mean, it makes for great headlines. But it's like this battle, this almost like Game of Thrones type battle between leadership and employees. Leaders want people in the office; employees don't, and we have this big fight, right? While this makes for great news, I think it's not very conducive to really co-creating what how we might do this in the future, right? So I think we need to come more together to figure out what would work for our organization. So that's the first thing. And these are tactics to figure out. And there is an A model for, you know, but that's just a blanket thing at this point. What's a little bit missing for me also from the discussion is by just talking about hybrid and remote, we're excluding a huge chunk of the workforce and industries that have what do we call location-dependent workforces. So in that, what I'm seeing, there are three models that sort of high-level models within, you know, there's still variation that have sort of come through by sort of industry or workforce type. So we've got the knowledge worker. So companies have a large knowledge worker workforce, like tech companies, professional services. And so several of them have instituted a model that's called work from anywhere, not only within country, but possibly also abroad. Right, which, as we know from HR, has tax implications and so forth. But with that workforce, there's a lot of experimentation in that space. Then we have companies who have a large location-dependent workforce, retail, you know, for example, supermarket chains. Uh, I know Tesco has experimented with things. So for that sort of workforce, you know, we can't offer remote, right? So then it needs to be a rethinking around more flexible work right? So shift swapping, things like that, right? How can we get creative with a workforce that can't do remote work? And then lastly, companies in that sense who are hybrid that have both a large knowledge worker and a large location-dependent workforce like Ford, Apple, for example, right? And how do you handle that when you have two distinct workforces and can you, you know, you can't apply necessarily one policy to both, right? How do you manage that? So those are sort of the three models. If we think about companies and the variety of workforces that we have, and I think that's what we need to really think about broadly, because otherwise we're just excluding the workforce that doesn't have the choice to be remote.
1: That's a really great point. And uh, I mean, we have covered an awful lot in the session today. So I'd just like to mention... Nicole, your HR hackathons, and what is that? And maybe something we'll experiment with here in Ireland. So maybe bring that to life for me.
0: Yeah, so that, the HR Hackathon Alliance, so that started about, I think now, five years ago or something like that. I was the um, Disrupt HR Chicago community lead. And that's sort of a TED Talk style format. And our community at that point, we had about 2000 community members. They wanted more. And at that point, I started experimenting with design thinking, so I created this HR hackathon format, which is in essence a two-hour ideation workshop where a company comes in, they present a challenge like something around, I don't know, employee experience, diversity recruiting, whatever challenge they have. And then we invite other HR people and they ideate together and come up with ideas and concepts to solve this. And the idea behind it was to create sort of a light introduction to design thinking for HR to whet their appetites, but also walk away with tangible ideas for a challenge they might face as well. And so it started in Chicago and it was hugely successful. We had all our sessions were sold out and people really, really loved the format. And so that's when I had the idea to sort of spin this out and say, well, it would be great if this could go global and, you know, could go to other cities. So right now we're in six cities at this point. And so I have local HR hackathon hosts who then lead those workshops in those cities. During the pandemic, of course, we also created virtual formats as well. But right now, so this fall, we are finally back in person and we've had great interest for people, you know, because these are also smaller. They're not big conferences. They're between 20 to 50 people. So that feels, you know, comfortable, I think, in this environment anyways. Yeah, so we're in the process of organizing in-person, in-location hackathons again.
1: Great stuff, Nicole. I mean, it's been fantastic uh, listening to Mm -hmm. how design thinking can be applicable in an organization, Mm -hmm. going through change and looking at the future of work. And it's obviously something I'm really passionate about. And a couple of things coming from the session today. It's a method and a mindset, and I think that's so important. It's not linear, it's loopy, and I think that probably describes the world of work today, and we often default to what we know and for HR to think of themselves not as policy reinforcers, but bringing the human back to human resources. So there's been uh, some great takeaways, I think, from the session today. Just before we leave, I'd like to ask you some quick fire questions. So a book you've enjoyed and would recommend most.
0: Yeah, so actually it's a combo, if I may, (laughs) because it was so powerful. So I actually read Think Again by Adam Grant and How to Be an Anti-Racist by Ibram Kendi together. And I felt this was a great combo because Think Again really challenges you to think again and be open and questioning your preconceived notions and assumptions. And Kendi, of course, challenges you very much in questioning your own identity and whiteness and things like that. So I thought these went really well together and reinforced each other.
1: Excellent. That's our first combo answer on the podcast, Nicole. (laughs) You're going to give people a new thought process for how we read books now. Do you listen to podcasts? (laughs) And if you do, which one would you recommend?
0: I do. I have to pitch my own. So, first of all, so it's called Talent Tales and I interview HR leaders or business leaders who apply design thinking to the world of work. So, because I get asked a lot who has done it and give me examples. So I recommend if you're interested in learning about real case studies, the podcast is, is called Talent Tales. We also for the HR Hackathon Alliance, I curate every month the top five podcasts for the month. So if you follow us on social media, you get that. And then One non-work podcast that I recently started listening to is called Longer Tables with Jose Andres, who, of course, is celebrity chef, but he also started the nonprofit World Kitchen, which now supports through food interventions, you know, crisis areas. And I admire him hugely. And I think in design thinking, but also in HR, sometimes we can learn from other disciplines and what others are doing and then bring that mindset back to what we do. So to me he is a great inspiration in what he does and I think we can learn a lot.
1: Think with the creativity of a chef. Brilliant. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Best life or career advice you've been given and by whom?
0: Yeah, so that was when I was newly promoted to first time manager and I was a horrible first time manager. <laughs> it was one of those you know early promotes, high performer, high potential. I was great at what I did, but I didn't really know how to lead people. Well, that was a timeline. the first level of leadership. We also were assessed through 360, right, from peers, customers, and my uh, superior. And so I had really great feedback from customers, so-so from peers, and really poorly from the team. So my boss told me, why don't you, you know, approach your, your peers and your team members like your customers? And at that point, I was like, what is she talking about? They get paid. And it's kind of ironic because obviously I've grown as a leader and now I lead employee experience and I reflect back on this moment a lot and how far I've come personally and as a leader but also because it's so ironic (laughs) and because at that point I was just not ready to hear it in hindsight I'm grateful for that feedback and it has helped me grow as a leader and you know become reflective in the space
1: that's great insight and newly appointed managers is definitely a big challenge (laughs) for a lot of our coaching requests that we get One person that motivates you and inspires you is my last question.
0: So again, I'm going to break the rules and I'm going to pick two because they are twins. They're actually my six-year-old nephews. And I'm picking them because, again, sometimes in design thinking we're inspired by other things and we want to immerse ourselves being playful again and unleashing the inner child. And so they just remind me of that. And I was just recently visiting Germany for the first time in six years. And just by the, you know, how courageous they are in the way they ask questions that are just not, you know, that no adult would ask, right? And the creativity and how they view the world. And it makes you reflect as an adult. So to me, they're a huge inspiration and a reminder that we really need to sometimes remind ourselves who our inner child was and, and show up in that way In that way of just fears, courage and, you know, asking questions that might be uncomfortable, but that going to drive us to the future or something like that.
1: (laughs) That's, uh, that relates so closely to an exercise we do on essence when we do career and coaching here. Mm -hmm. And it uh, really is a great message to leave the podcast on unleashing our inner child and, uh, Thank you. Feel the fear and do it anyway, almost type of stuff. So uh, it's been great having you on, Nicole, and very best of luck in your work in the future. And thanks for being on The cord. Thanks for listening to The Chord today. We would really appreciate if you could follow, subscribe and share as we seek to grow our community of listeners. Speak again soon.